Hello, I'm Andrew Case, and you're listening to Working for the Word. Welcome. We've been in the middle of a series called Let It Go, and we're going to continue that today. So if you haven't heard the first two parts, go ahead and go back and listen to those. And I want to start out by talking about the current dilemma that we find ourselves in as evangelical Christians in the world of publications. I want to start out with a concrete example. The other day I was looking online at the Encyclopedia for Hebrew Language and Linguistics. This is published by Brill. It's a four-volume reference work. A lot of work has gone into this. Super valuable information. Now, as you would expect, it is published under the All Rights Reserved copyright, and it is locked down, as locked down as possible. Now, this is extremely, extremely valuable knowledge for the global church, right, to grow in their knowledge of Hebrew, which impacts the task of Bible translation globally, right? The more we know about Hebrew language and linguistics, the more access we have to this kind of information, the more access the actual translators, indigenous translators, have to this kind of information, the better, right? The better they're going to be able to do theology in the original languages and do Bible translation. Okay, so that said, how much do you think these four volumes cost? Mm, 50 bucks? 60 bucks? Well, no. They cost almost $1,500. Now, you can get a used copy online for about $1,200. Now, there is another option to access this reference work. You can buy several different packages on the website of Brill. So, if I want to access Brill online reference works for one day, I can pay them $14. If I want seven days, I can pay $25. And if I want 30 days, I can pay them $70. So the underlying assumption to all of this, I think, by the publishing company is that if you are not rich, you do not deserve to know about the deep things of Hebrew. And I say rich very carefully because if you read books like Money, Possessions, and Eternity, you'll quickly find out that if you can afford something like that, a book like that, then you're within the top 1% of the richest people who have ever lived in history, not just right now, but in history. So it's probably even less than 1%. So the underlying assumption, whether it's explicit or not, whether they thought through this or not as the publisher, is that, once again, the global church, by and large, does not need to know about these things. They don't need to have access to the original languages to this level. The other assumption, that this may be a little offensive, but it comes across, this, this kind of thing comes across as implying that all these people who speak these other minority languages in the world that live in, you know these little corners of Papua New Guinea and Indonesia and who knows where else, they are probably too primitive to ever use this kind of resource. They're probably never going to be really that advanced to be able to access this kind of information and use it or even want to learn it. You know, they're they're primitive. They're, They're behind the curve globally with academia. 
So why would we even try to make it available to them? So if, for instance, one of them who has a PhD and speaks English and their own mother tongue, if they wanted to translate it, well, too bad. It's impossible. It would be impossible for that to happen. And if it did happen, then they would be charging so much that no one in that country would ever buy it, use it, or learn from it. Let's take another example from this publisher, Brill. It's a book called Tetragrammaton, Western Christians and the Hebrew Name of God, From the Beginnings to the 17th Century, Studies in the History of Christian Traditions. And this is by Robert Wilkinson. Now, I don't know the author. I don't have anything against him. Uh, I don't know why he chose to publish with Brill. All I know is that he did the best work on the divine name I have ever seen. It's 600 pages. There is, without exception, no book that comes close, no resource that comes close to the depth of scholarship that he has done in this work. He has left no stone unturned. It's incredible, incredible resource. Everyone needs it, right? Well, what's happening? No one's buying it. No one's reading it. Why? Because it costs $300. Is anyone in the rest of the world ever going to be able to see that information? No. No. You know what kind of information the rest of the world is going to have access to? Well, go to YouTube and just run a search on the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, or something like that, Yahweh. Uh, You're going to see a plethora of unbelievably stupid stuff, like the most horrible scholarship or lack thereof that you can imagine. I mean, stuff that the dregs of humanity has brought forth to the world that has 50,000 views, 100,000 views, and stuff that is deceiving people and perpetuating superstition and all kinds of things around the divine name. It's really sad. And... This is what the rest of the world is going to find because that's all they have access to. A lot of it's in Spanish, a lot of it's in French, a lot of it's in Portuguese. These are the things that are getting translated and spread all over the place. You know why? It's because the best scholarship is in these books and no one can afford and they're all rights reserved so no one can translate them. Now, I'm not trying to offend anybody who participated in these works. Of course, I I know a lot of really great scholars who participate in a lot of this good research. But here's the question. Is there any other way? Or is it just impossible? Is there but is there any other way that we could do that quality of scholarship, collaboration, make a an encyclopedia of the Hebrew language and linguistics? and make it open license, creative commons, for the global church to have access to. A lot of people would say, no, it's impossible. We can think of no other way. You have to go the traditional route. You have to charge thousands of dollars for the thousands of hours of those scholars' time that they invested to repay them. And, and that's the only way. Okay, well, how long did it take the biblical writers to produce what they produced? How long do you think it took to write Isaiah? How long do you think it took to write Lamentations, which is incredible poetry? How long do you think it took to write Ezekiel? Do you think those authors got any remuneration for their time? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going around hawking a complete set of his letters for $1,500? Because, you know, he had to suffer for those. (laughs) He not only had to spend the time on it, but 
kind of got some pretty bad persecution for it, spent time in jail, you know, he probably deserved some serious cash just for the cost of, you know, mental trauma that he went through. He didn't have the luxury of sitting in an air-conditioned office to compose these letters. Okay, so is there any other way? That's the question, right? Imagine if the people who wanted to do this encyclopedia got together and said, hey, let's do a Kickstarter, and all of these people all over the world who are interested, especially if we're going to give this away for free when we're done, and digitally especially, um, what if we we did this and, and then people who are excited about this could contribute? I think they would have actually made more money than they are making now. When you're selling four volumes at $1,500 a pop, how many are you actually going to sell? There's probably going to be a lot of major libraries who aren't even going to spend that. So probably most of those authors at the end of the day are never going to recuperate the amount of time that they spent on that. And they're never going to receive adequate compensation. And if they do, it's going to be long after they're dead. So how beautiful would it have been if up front, the global community of the body of Christ had come together and said, this is something the global church needs, especially if we can make it open license that can go into any language and grow exponentially. Wow. There are people, every missionary who is supported by individuals and churches for what they do knows that there are people out there with money who want to support that kind of radical generosity and that kind of discipleship of the nations through resources and tools that the global church needs. Or what if some of those scholars had said, you know what? There are people, I know there are people out there. If there's people who support Bible translators to work full-time in Bible translation, surely there's someone who will support me or a few people who will support me and partner with me financially to work on this book, especially on the condition that I'm going to make sure it gets to the widest available audience, to the most people and the most languages possible without the typical copyright restrictions. Well, some people might say, that's a nice thought, but are those people really going to use it? I mean, who's going to use it? Is, is somebody in Indonesia really going to use that resource? I mean, come on. I'm reading a book right now called Exponential Organizations by Salim Ismail. And he talks about how the mobile phone market started. And all these supposed market experts, every year of the beginnings of the mobile phone market, these so-called experts were making predictions. And their predictions about the growth were off by 99% every year. 99% off. I mean, that's, that's a huge, colossal failure to understand where things were going. Could it not be the same way with us as the church that we think, ah, oh, well, all these people, what, what, they won't do anything with this stuff if we make it available? Really? You know that. I'm sure a lot of people thought the same thing about 12 measly, humble disciples, fishermen, tax collectors back in the first century. What, what will they actually do? They won't change the world. So let's continue on with the article that we've been looking at by Tim Jory at Unfolding Word called Letting Go. 
So we're in this section called Equipping to Equip, and this is under the heading of Incomplete Missiology. This is one of the hindrances to embracing a new paradigm of radical generosity with biblical content in the global church. So here's the deal. There are several models that can be used to accomplish a missional objective. Okay, so for instance, translating the Bible, developing an evangelistic strategy or training leaders, etc. So number one, one could do it for the church. Number two, one could do it with the church. And number three, one could equip the church to do it for themselves. Three nuances there. Very important. This progression increases in effectiveness, but it remains linear in scale. And only when a model crosses the line to the decisively different model of equipping others to equip others, that a compounding or nonlinear exponential growth process becomes possible. So once again, you could either do something for the church, you can do something with the church, or you can equip the church to do. Those are all linear growth. But what we want is exponential growth, so we have to equip the church to equip. Equip the church to equip. And if they don't have access to the resources, they're not going to be able to do that. This is one of the central aspects of the pattern we see in the New Testament. Go figure. Particularly with how Paul approached the task of accomplishing the Great Commission. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now listen to this. This is, this is important. The licensing of biblical content is of critical importance in this progression because all rights reserved licenses tend to create a centralized model that only scales in a linear progression. If each and every element of the global church that desires to translate, adapt, or redistribute a resource must be granted explicit permission by the owners of the resource, the friction in the process inevitably slows it to a crawl, despite all good intent to the contrary. And we know, I've said this before, we know there's good intent. I'm not saying anyone has bad intent behind publishing these things. They just maybe haven't thought it through enough. So the alternative with an open licensed resource is that Anyone who needs to use the content in any way for building up the church is pre-cleared to do so immediately, subject to the conditions of the license. This enables the entire church to collaborate together in the translation, redistribution, and use of the content in whatever way needed without hindrance. So, that now brings us to the fifth hindrance, and that is confusing copyright and trademark. Setting aside this hindrance involves understanding how copyright law actually works and how it differs from other branches of intellectual property law, namely trademark. Now, one of the most common concerns about making biblical content available under open licenses is articulated in this statement by a well-known American pastor. So here, here's what he says. 
You don't want anybody taking the ESV and then changing the words to wrong translations. The safeguard we have in our culture to prevent such distortion is to copyright things. If you want to produce another translation of the Bible, you have to call it something else. You can't call it the ESV, NIV, RSV, or NASB. You have to call it your own thing so people know that you're taking responsibility. So his conclusion is that copyrights protect against distortion by others. This is founded upon several false assumptions. Number one, if they create a distorted derivative, it will be indistinguishable from the ESV. Well, on the contrary, if any Bible is made available under an open license, the most that other parties could do would be to create their own derivative based on it that includes their changes in their own copy. But they would be legally obligated to change the name, indicate the provenance of the original, that they have made their own modifications, and what those modifications are. Here's another assumption, false assumption here. Copyright actually safeguards against distortions. That is totally not true. In an age when all content is digital and anyone can effectively do whatever they want with content on any computing device to which they have access, introducing distortions into copies of original content is much, much easier to do. So copyrights cannot and do not prevent distortion. They merely provide the owner of the copyright with a legal platform from which to sue infringers. And then only after the fact. So the fear of lawsuit may in some situations be a deterrent, but apart from the irony of attempting to build a missional movement on the implicit threat of a lawsuit by Christians who assert they are defending the word of a sovereign God, this line of reasoning is, I think, overly optimistic. Just because a copyright owner does not know of bad things happening to their copyrighted content doesn't mean they aren't happening, especially if the content is in high demand. Every owner of digital content in the internet age should assume their copyright-restricted content is being used in all kinds of ways in which they would not approve. The only people who are actually hindered by the all-rights-reserved copyright are those who understand what it means who fear God and desire to do what's right. And then a final false assumption in this pastor's statement. Copyright is the best legal tool to use. It is important that if someone creates a derivative of any open licensed Bible, that they call it something else or call it their own thing so that people know they are taking responsibility. But this speaks to the identity of the derivative and the one who created it. And identity is not the point of copyright. This is the confusion here. Copyright law grants the creator of an original work exclusive rights for its use and distribution. But trademark, on the other hand, is the branch of intellectual property law that deals with identity. So these are two different things. Now this finally leads us to the sixth hindrance to embracing radical generosity with open licenses of biblical content, and that is misunderstanding open licenses. To set aside this hindrance, we need not only to understand what an open license is, 
but also understand what it is not and what it does not imply. So what does it mean? What, is, what does open mean in this, in this sense? So anyone can freely access, use, modify, and share for any purpose, subject at most to requirements that preserve provenance and openness. Okay, so once again, what does open mean? Anyone can freely access, use, modify, and share for any purpose. The specific freedoms contained in this concise definition can be summarized by the five R's of freedom. Here they are. Number one, retain, which means anyone has the right to make, own, and control copies of the content. For example, to download, duplicate, store, or manage it. Number two, reuse, which means anyone has the right to use the content in a wide range of ways. So in a class, in a study group, on a website, in a video. Number three, revise. Everyone has the right to adapt, adjust, modify, or alter the content itself. So translate the content into another language, for example. Number four, remix. Everyone has the right to combine the original or revised content with other material and create something new. So, for example, incorporate the content into a mashup or repurpose it for another use. And then finally, redistribute. This means that everyone has the right to share copies of the original content, your revisions or your remixes with others. So once again, those R's are retain, reuse, revise, remix, and redistribute. Now, it's important to know that an open license is necessarily irrevocable, granting the stated freedoms perpetually. That's important because these freedoms are not merely addressing the distribution of finished content. They're intended to create a stable foundation for creation of other resources from them. An unstoppable movement of interlinked and interdependent biblical content in every language must necessarily be built on a foundation that can never be shifted or removed. Now, the question then is, where do you get these kind of licenses? How does that work? Well, there's this thing called Creative Commons. It's a nonprofit organization that provides royalty-free public licenses that make it easy to release restrictions on content subject to certain conditions. So they're designed to be internationally valid and essentially jurisdiction neutral while remaining effective globally. So this makes it possible to easily and legally combine and remix content across languages and domains using standardized licenses. Now, not all the licenses they provide constitute quote-unquote open licenses, there are, in fact, only three Creative Commons licenses that qualify as open licenses. So here they are. Number one, there's Creative Commons Zero, CC Zero. This waives all rights, effectively making the content equivalent to public domain. Then we've got Creative Commons Attribution, so that would be CC BY. This license waives all rights other than the preservation of the provenance of the original, so attribution. You get credit for it. People know where it came from. 
And then Creative Commons attribution share alike. So that'd be CC by SA. Now this one is just like the previous one, except that it adds something. It adds the condition that if anyone makes derivatives of the content, they have to share it in the same way. They have to perpetuate the openness of those derivatives. So that means they can't make a derivative and then lock it all down. Now we said earlier that it's important to also understand what open license does not mean because this is part of this, this hindrance, this misunderstanding with a lot of people. So what does it not mean? So regarding ownership, open license does not mean copyright free or in the public domain necessarily. So when the term of copyright protection expires, a resource enters the public domain, right? We know about that, where copyright restrictions no longer apply. An open license isn't the same thing as the public domain. The open license defines the freedoms granted to others by the owner of the content, but it doesn't transfer the content to the public domain or nullify ownership of the content. In the same vein, open license does not mean copyright assignment. In other words, an open license doesn't transfer the rights in the content to anyone else. It simply dictates what others are pre-authorized to do with the content under the terms of the license. Now, what about derivatives? So this is, you have to listen carefully to the nuances here. Open license does not mean others are free to change the original. Okay, so they can make derivatives, but they can't change the original. So just like we make derivatives of the Bible, let's say, of the original manuscripts that we find in translations of the Bible, doesn't mean we have the right to go back and erase things out of those ancient manuscripts and change them. This is explicitly forbidden by open licenses, and it effectively does not happen. There is always a way to identify derivatives. Now, open license does not mean that the owner of the original has responsibility for or endorses derivatives created from it. So, open licenses don't permit others to do something with a copy of the content and suggest that the owner of the original approves of it. The owner of the original is never liable for what others do with their copy of the content. The one who does the work bears that responsibility alone. Now regarding quality, open license doesn't mean open workflow, like Wikipedia or something. It's not content created using a crowdsourcing, there where anyone can make changes to the content while it's being developed. The means by which the content is created has nothing to do with the license under which the content is made available for others to use. That's important. It's also important to understand that open license does not mean low quality either. The value and trustworthiness of the content is intrinsic to the content itself and has nothing to do with the license under which the content is made available. Now, what about money regarding money? Open license does not mean free to download. And conversely, free to download does not mean open license. Making content available free of charge is an important first step to equipping the entire global church, but it does not address the freedom to translate, adapt, build on, redistribute, and use as desired. Also, open license does not mean not for sale. 
open license resources absolutely can be sold for profit. The open nature of the license merely prevents the use of monopoly to contrive an artificial scarcity of the resources so as to drive up the price. And this is the problem that we see all the time. This is the reason, you know, the the Hebrew encyclopedia I just talked about is crazy expensive because there is no competition. So this simultaneously ensures that digital versions of the resource can always be and inevitably are made freely available while also incentivizing anyone who has the means to do so to legally make the resource available in physical formats, so printed books or micro SD cards, at fair prices. Now, there's more detail in the paper by Tim Jory in the description, so I encourage you to go there, check it out, read the whole thing. This is just a a summary for those of you who may not have time to read a longer paper, but The essential step here that we're talking about is for content owners to go from closed to open and release their content under a truly open license for the glory of God and the good of his church. And here, this way, the global church is able to participate with equality, with equality in the translation and adaptation of the content for effective use in every people group and language that desires it. There's a reason why Android, the Android operating system, has hammered iOS. Nobody thought that was going to happen. When the iPhone came out, nobody thought anyone would ever catch up or beat that operating system and that reach with the mobile phone. Well, it happened. Android reached way, way more people and continues to reach more people. Because why? Because Google understood these principles and they released it as open source for people to make derivatives, for people to be able to adapt it, translate it, spread it. What we are creating in the West is very, very similar to what Apple has created, a walled garden for the rich. We have created a walled garden of restricted resources in English that are extremely high quality extremely well-researched, extremely edifying, and they're only for the rich, and they're only for those who speak English. Now, you may say, Andrew, you're really overstating your case. I mean, come on, it's not that bad. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe I'm, I'm not reading the signs well, but um, think about it. I'm intentionally trying to be provocative to wake people up to this reality, because it is a sad reality that we live in right now. On a personal note, I would much prefer If I had no financial partnership on the mission field, I would much prefer to work at Subway or McDonald's so I could make ends meet if that enabled me to give away edifying content that's going to make disciples of the nations for free. And that's not even an original idea with me. That's exactly what Paul was doing the whole time. He was making tents to make ends meet so that he would not be a drain on the resources of the nascent church. But I'm afraid that most people would think that it would be totally normal if Paul lived today, if Paul said, you know what, I don't want to make tents anymore. I want to charge everybody for every copy that they make of Ephesians, and especially Romans. I want to get a kickback from every single copy that spreads to the churches of those letters. And that way I can you know, be free to do a lot of other things with my time financially. 
And people would say, Paul, you deserve that more than anybody else. You, yeah, you deserve that. I mean, you're being used by the Holy Spirit so powerfully. Um, of course, you should, yeah, here's, here's the royalties. Yeah, go for it. But what I want to say here is that biblically speaking, what we do with our money, what we do generously with our money is so tied to the gospel. You, you've got the, the example of Zacchaeus, you know? He said he would give half his money to the poor and pay back four times over those he had cheated. So when he said this, and this is, I'm quoting Randy Elkhorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, Jesus did not merely say, good idea. He said, today salvation has come to this house, Luke 19, 9. So this is amazing. Jesus judged the reality of this man's salvation based on his willingness and his cheerfulness, his cheerful eagerness to part with his money for the glory of God and the good of others. You know, maybe, maybe this is what we, we need to think about, that as authors and producers of biblical content, we might just need to take a vow of poverty and say, you know what, I expect to be poor for the rest of my life so that the church, the global church, can be rich in Christ. Randy Elkhorn also writes in his book, Who is more frequently featured in Christian magazines and talk shows? Poor widows or rich fools? So I'd like you to think about that in terms of the global church, those, those people who are the, the majority, who live in the global south, the believers there who are extremely, extremely poor compared to us in, in North America. So poor widows or rich fools? We are the rich fools. Who receives the most respect and attention in Christian organizations? Who is most highly esteemed in churches? Who serves on our boards and determines our direction? Does the church have a scarcity of poor widows and a surplus of rich fools? If so, does this explain the moral and spiritual erosion so evident in the Christian community? So this has implications all across the board for copyright, for all of the stuff that we've been talking about. And last but not least, I want to read another relevant quote from Randy Elkhorn's book. He says, as a pastor, teacher, and counselor, my interactions with others, as well as my observations of my own tendencies, have convinced me that in the Christian community today, there is more blindness, rationalization, and unclear thinking about money than anything else. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Next time, we're going to talk about what the future could look like. How could things be different if this changed? 